Hi, I'm Bjorn Roberts. I'm Jess Fishlock. This is Owen Singer Jones. I'm Owen Vaughan Williams. This is Tash Harden. And you are listening to the Holy Delivery Podcast. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the third Coleman Had a Dream podcast in three weeks. Look at us, we're flying. Um, if, you, if, if we still have more than three listeners now, we're very grateful. Thank you for returning for the third time. Uh, I am with Ruth as ever. Hello, Ruth, how are you? All right, good morning. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. It's absolutely bloody freezing cold here, so I am sitting by the radiator all day, uh, hoping that sunshine and, uh, and a vaccine comes my way soon. But other than that... Living the dream. How about yourself? <laughs> about the same. <laughs> it was looking at the weather forecast, though. It was one of those days where I don't miss living in Boston. <laughs> yeah, do you know? What? I saw. I saw that uh, someone posted something. Uh, the real feel weather in Boston uh, on Friday this week was minus twenty three degrees. <laughs> I do not miss that in any way, shape. In fact, it seems it makes the weather here seem positively warm. In fact. <laughs> Um, well, I hope you had a good weekend. I had a, a blisteringly good weekend. Um, Newcastle did this thing, and I don't know whether you've seen, but the little round thing that they seem to kick around you quite a lot, <laughs> they, they, they seem to put it in this big kind of net thing in the, at the back of, of one part, and a, and a man with tiny arms couldn't quite get to the ball, and everyone seemed very happy about it. I was very confused by the whole turn of events, but very satisfied at the same time. When you, when you said they did this strange thing, I was about to say, what, they won? <laughs> Win, score, <laughs> pass the ball to each other. Uh, yeah, you, know, it, you can insert your own punchline however you see fit. Um, so, yeah, I enjoyed that. And as we were just saying there before we started, Feyenoord won 3-1 on the weekend. It's all, you know, this is as good as football has got for me probably since the summer of 2016, uh, which is a sad turn of events. But anyway... We are waffling before you've even started. Um, we wanted to talk this week about um, Ashley Williams' retirement from football. Uh, we wanted to talk about the under-21 draw. Uh, and we wanted to talk about a few other odds and ends. Obviously, Gareth Bale and his performance last night for Spurs against Brighton has, uh, has cropped up more than once. So I think we'll have a quick chat about that as well. Um, we'll start with the under-21s, Ruth. Kind of, I would describe that as a tough draw. That was my initial like reaction as well when I when I looked at it. But given we were in pot four, you know, you, you're gonna obviously by default get three teams that are ranked better than you. Yeah. Um, and I think it could have been worse than the combination of the Dutch, Swiss, and Bulgarians. But that doesn't mean it's not a difficult draw. Yeah. Um, the 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 Dutch and the Swiss are in are in this spring's finals. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, the format for that is quite interesting. Perhaps we'll come back to that before we before we finish this. But yeah, I, I think the the problem is that because of the way the coefficient ranking things works, we're going to find it hard to to go up those pots when we're always treating the under twenty ones as a feeder system really rather than a, a unit in themselves. And I think unfortunately for our purposes, it has to have that emphasis most of the time. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and then the, the odd occasion where it doesn't, you know, the timing's a bit off or the, or we're already out of the qualification or, you know, so I, I think it's, I think we're always 
pushing water up a hill a little bit with the under 21s unfortunately yeah, I do know what you mean. I'm intrigued to see how how they they kind of face this on the basis that, you know, like you say, the, the top two teams already in this spring's tournament, so they're going to be a, a tough teams a tough team. Sorry to play. Um, although that said, I thought we gave a good account of ourselves when we played the Germans at the end of the mm-hmm. last campaign and, and looked a threat there. I I do wonder if we might perhaps see like a slightly different approach this time round, just purely on the basis that we had people like Brennan Johnson. Um, my has gone blank now, Ben Woodburn, uh, amongst others, who were in and around the senior squad and then didn't actually get any playing time. I just wonder if we might see a slight shift this time, especially if um, Rob Page is con- going to continue having... He was the, the 21's boss before. I wonder if you might see a bit of a slight change in that where th- we're better off giving your Brennan Johnsons and, and, and a few others kind of match experience with the 21s even if it's at the start of the campaign and then they kind of have a change of plan as things move on just to see if they can jump up those rankings a little bit and and have a bit more of a successful run at things i mean i'd like to see that i think you know a a lot depends on um obviously a lot depends on injuries with the main squad and who's in form and who's playing and how much reliance you have to put on the under 21s but i think some consistency would would be good obviously but then the you know everybody's age comes into play this this particular tournament isn't being staged till 2023 yeah um, true. and 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 so you know a lot of the players that might be involved now are gonna are gonna age out as well so it, that's always a difficult balance isn't it it's just where where you put the emphasis because you know by default that 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 squad is always in transition by definition of it being an age group squad and so you you know are you looking to develop them as a means that they can move it you know they age out at 21 can they move into the main squad are they um capable are they going to add to the main squad um or are you actually looking at developing them as a unit and trying to get them through to this this sort of competition and i think um I, I don't disagree with you. I'd like to see the emphasis swing more to making the 21s something of itself, but I, I'm not sure we've got that that capacity, really. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, and, and especially when you look at the, the as you say, the, the date that it's going to happen in 2023, it's a, big, it's a big lump of time when you consider that they are under 21s. You have to be looking at boys who are, you know, 19 or maybe 20. I, I don't know what the exact, date rules are but so because you are allowed an overage player as long as they were born before a certain date so I, I'm sure there'd be some sort of mathematical jiggery pokery going on there but I, I, I think that it'll be an interesting one to see how they play that because I mean obviously Luke Jeffcott was a big part of of what they did and I say achieved because they did do relatively well in, in, in some of those games last time round and I wonder if you know that is an hour turning point whether it's worth are we, is he going to commit to two years with the 21s perhaps and then move up when his, when his time is right? Or do we kind of look a bit more further down the line with it? I had a great question actually from uh, Nick Latham on Twitter. Um, after Deutsch's run of form last year, but no call up for the senior side, should players like him and this season, Luke Jeff got be given a chance to impress at senior level um, instead of recalling older players. So I guess we're looking more at players that are in form there than than kind of relying on someone like Hal for 20 minutes here and there. I mean, I, I personally, you know, perhaps you could say to an extent that 
the decision about Deutsch's not to bring him in has been vindicated perhaps a little bit because he's not really done much this year, this season. By the same token, you know, Jeff got his on fire at the minute. You know, mm. should he be given that chance or should you follow the same logic that it needs to be a more than a six-month spell before you get him in? And I say all that just to go full circle because then obviously that does have an impact on the 21s at the same time. Yeah, agreed. I mean, Jeff Cart in particular, if you were... If- all the arguments we were making for Doidge sort of this time last year in terms of the player in form, Jeff Cutts f- fulfilling that at the minute. I mean, his goal ratio is is crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It's like f- 15 in 20 for the, for the something like 15 in 25, I think it is for the, for the season. Um, and I, I don't think you can ignore that. He's obviously, no. he's obviously clearly in form. Although interestingly, somehow Plymouth's goal difference is minus six. That, that is exceptional i've got all the time in the world for that which that, that that's my stat of the day that made me smile looking at that, that yesterday an absolutely superb stat well done big fan well done um yeah so anyway so I, I i don't know i i don't know how gigs slash page is looking at these informed strikers i think the evidence from the autumn was we might be looking at just Kiefer as a and, you know, a kind of 20-minute when we need him kind of man, and they're not particularly looking for other strikers. I wonder if that looking forward, though, Jeff Cop would be the new key for more. Uh, you know, not for right now, but in terms of a, they sort of play a similar way um, in mm-hmm. the, in the, to the extent that they're kind of big lads. But I, I do think Jeff Cop has very got very good feet. Um, mm-hmm. I think his footwork again I've only seen kind of three or four games for the under 21s but from what he's done I think I've been really impressed with the way with his movement as well as kind of his hold up play so I would I would say he could perhaps be more in the howl kind of mold in in terms of he may not be as mobile but in that sort of thing where he can do a little bit of everything mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, d- I think it's it's early doors on that one I don't I don't think we can read the tea leaves on that one yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I will. I'm sure we'll talk about the March game. Well, I say we will. We definitely will talk about the March game soon. And, <laughs> and I think that how he, how he and others are involved in a, in the friendlies that around them will be something that I'm sure we will uh, we will talk about. But I think it's, it's it's worth noting, like you say, that the the twenty ones are, are constantly in a state of transition, and and for someone like Jeff Cott, let's say that does make an interesting or leave them in an interesting situation, doesn't it? It does. It does. And I think. If you are at that point in your career as well, you you can see that there is, I mean, we've discussed this before, but there clearly is a route and a possibility of getting into the main squad. You know, the, the main squad is, whether it's good or bad, but is is quite a dynamic squad itself, isn't it, in terms of bodies in and out. Yeah. So I, th- I think that the under-21s, I think players are very willing to be involved with the under twenty ones because they can see it as a, an escalator to the yeah, to the main squad. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, to move on a little bit before we talk about Ash, I just did want to mention the frankly farcical um, noises that are coming out of UEFA at the minute, um, talking about um, having domestic fans only in for the Euros and my absolute highlight of flying fans in in some sort of bubble in and out to get taking them to the match and flying them back off home again with no quarantine um i have written a blog on this for the welsh football fans uh page so please do go and have a look at that welshfootballfans.com but 
I just wanted to kind of air it out with you a little bit. I mean, I've said what what I want to say about it. It's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. But it's more the logic that they don't really seem to care about sporting integrity, fans, anything other than from what I can take anyway. We just need to make as much money from this as we can. Yeah, I mean, they're they're looking for a way to retain the host cities as the host cities because a different a different venue arrangement is is frankly a problem for UEFA yeah. that becomes their problem at that point um equally the host cities have um ag- agreed to be venues on the basis of what it's going to do for you know them as a tourist destination and for for their income so they're missing out on that so it's difficult to see what's in it for the host cities right now um so you've got these two these two kind of just looking at it from a financial point of view you've got these two ends of the seesaw yeah um that that are are pushing against each other um and then if you bring in the what makes sense from a safety point of view, I mean, we're all, we're in, it's, it's February and we're basically all still in lockdown. Yeah. The, the thought that by June you can really have, I mean, unless the vaccination gets rolled out in a way that we can't, we can't imagine at the minute, but it's difficult to see how you can get to a point in June that even having people from, half a dozen blocks around the stadium allowed into the stadium together collectively makes any sort of sense. Even that doesn't make sense from a social distancing point of view. I mean, they were even talking about at Wembley for the final, breaking social distancing rules as a one-off to get 45,000 people in the stadium. I mean, it's just uh, the mind boggles. I mean, presumably that's not up to... UEFA. Presumably, that's up to the local governments. Yeah, in, it is in uh, those in those yeah. cities slash countries. They're having that discussion with, as I understand it, you know, the sports ministers or whatever to tr- to see to see if they can do that. I mean, I, I I get everything you've said, and you know, and I know we're singing from the same hymn sheet in in that you know mm-hmm. this should be about fans and it should be about football, not money. But I you know I get that there's a financial aspect here. I'm not kind of ignorant to that. I just feel like having 3,000 people in a stadium doesn't get, especially if they're all domestic fans anyway, all the objectives that you would want to have to, to gain, if you like, from being a host city, it, it dissipates anyway. It, it just, I don't know, It just, I just think, that, and I know it won't happen, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, the right thing to do is knock everything back two years. The Euros mm-hmm. become 22, the World Cup becomes 24, and so on and so on and so on. By the time this little cycle of what four or five, I think, already preordained uh, locations for tournaments is finished, then you can start the cycle again. All right, we're out of kilter for a few years, you know, and I'm sure Qatar would be pissed off that they've spent all this money and destroyed, you know, their human rights record for the for the stadiums they've built. But it's it's about what's doing the right thing, and I just. I don't know. I just feel like I said this before. I feel like playing football at the moment is fairly futile, although I'm grateful it's happening. By the same token, I think playing international football in March and and latterly in June and July is, you know, bonkers to me. 
I, I agree. I don't think it makes, a, particularly the format that they're looking at, the way that they're hanging on to this sort yeah. of distributed model across Europe. Um, it's kind of working at the minute at club level because everybody's, well, not everybody, the vast majority of players and, and coaches are, are staying in their bubbles and they're, and they're behaving yeah. responsibly. And I think the psychology for the wider public of having some sport on the telly is actually quite important at the minute. But the inference therefore is that if UEFA are looking at it as a way to do the tournament safely for both the teams and the host cities, you've really, if you're going to do it this summer, you've really only got the option of doing it behind closed doors. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I and I think you could just imagine them kind of sat around a table as well. Like we're going to have to do this behind closed doors. It's the only safe thing to do. And the same person putting their hand up all the time. Yeah, but yeah, but what about the money, lad? Because that's because <laughs> that's sort of why we're all here. So uh, yeah, you don't get your free free Rolexes for nothing, lads. Come on, you'll have to think of something a bit better than this. Um, yeah, it's just nonsense, really. But. Um, Let's hope that there's a resolution to it soon. They're talking about making a final decision in April, which again seems ludicrous, but um, let's hope that that kind of timeline speeds up and that there's a, a common sense approach, regardless of what the outcome is. Let's just hope that there is some sort of common sense approach and uh, and decision further down the line. Yeah, I mean, I, I noticed that the, just going back to the under-21s, the, the tournament that they're hosting this um this spring, they've actually kind of changed the format quite interestingly. They're, they're doing like the round, it's 16 clubs that get through. And they're, they're hosting it in Hungary and Slovenia. And as far as I can make out, they've got seven different venues across the two countries. <clears throat> Excuse me. But what they're doing is they're doing the group stages in March. And then when they know what eight teams are through to the knockout phase, they're doing that in early June. Ah, oh, right. And I actually think that's quite an inventive solution. You've got confined locations in an in an identified international window in March. You're not moving, you know, you're moving the 16 clubs to Hungary slash Slovenia, but you're only moving 16 to one location. And you then can, re, you then regroup, you know, step back, regroup, rejig, and, and have the knockout stages in in. June. And I do think that perhaps if UEFA got a little more inventive with how they're doing this, they could they could still do something where, let's say Rome, for example, in March, I'm just, you know, just echoing, obviously it's not going to happen, but let's say yeah. Rome in March hosted our group games across the normal March international window. No telly, no nothing, done. And then by the summer, you'd be dealing with fewer teams. You could reduce you could reduce the locations. Everybody knows what's going to happen. You know that this team are going to play that team, and you've got about a two-month window to get it organized. I just I just think that ironically, they've been quite inventive with the under-21s and they're being incredibly dogmatic with the yeah. main tournament and at a point where actually if they were a bit more inventive, they may be able to find a solution that's more workable and and more contained and safer. I mean, I think you're right. And, I, you know, as you say, 
the inventiveness that they've made or, or, or come up with is, is, is admirable in that sense. I guess a lot of it comes down to the fact it'll be easier to secure the players. It's less, you know, the, the TV and, and kind of finance of the situation is probably very different. And ultimately, that's what it boils down to. Mm-hmm. Um, equally, you know, the having home and away fans is less of an issue. Um, so, again, I, I do think all of those things play into it. And that's probably... You know the ultimate kind of elephant in the room, as you say, is they're hanging on to this twelve locations nonsense, and that is what the real problem is. Um, if they were willing to at least be flexible on that and do it, do it in one country, I heard lots of rooms that Russia was going to be stepping in to host it. At least then, the situation would be contained, as you say, and you know, everyone could kind of make a bit more of a, of a sensible plan moving forward. But as you say, sticking to the to the twelve locations nonsense frankly is 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 not doing anything any good and that's before we even get to the the ridiculousness of home fans are allowed in and away fans aren't um you know i get that in a game in rome between switzerland and turkey or wherever that game is being played but between wales and in italy that's that's a nonsense you know in in the same way that um you know, Spain, I assume, will play in Bilbao. Uh, Scotland will play at Hamden. Uh, it's, it's, it's laughable that you can have a home advantage and only certain teams will get that. I mean, it's just, it makes a, a mockery of the whole thing. The whole thing. And, you know, people say, I won't make that much of a difference. Of course it makes a difference. You know, the, the team's home records and away records over Europe differ wildly because of the advantage you get from being at home and in common surroundings and you know with positive support behind you no one give you any boost <laughs> that's going to be completely positive I, I just you know I want this to go ahead I want this to happen I want to be sat in Rome in, in June having a Moretti but I also value my health and I also think that you know UEFA aren't doing that never mind kind of sporting integrity it's I don't know I'm getting myself annoyed now <laughs> I feel myself getting wound up it's just it's just absolute nonsense yeah, I mean, the the idea of, you know, Wales fans somehow gathering in Cardiff, which in itself is an issue, getting on a plane, <laughs> flying, to, flying to Rome, like being kind of, I don't know, with the, with the, I, what's the, what's the word for Italian police? Polizia? Yeah. You know, marching people to the stadium, marching yeah. them back to the aeroplane. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, are they all going to be in hazmat suits as they're going down the road? <laughs> and, you know, the, the example I gave is what what happens if Wales get to the final? Are they going to fly everyone from Cardiff to Bristol Airport and buses from there? Are they going to fly everyone to <laughs> to, to Stansted? Is there, are they going to clear Wembley Way and let planes land on there? I mean, it's just, it's just nonsense. It's just as if people aren't going to infiltrate that another way. Like, it's just... It's insane, and 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 you know, I I know we're laughing about it now, but that's because it's that it, that's how stupid it is, you know. Yeah. If you if you yeah. didn't laugh, you'd cry, as as as, as Grandma would say. Like it's it's nuts, absolute insanity, and you know, like I say, the idea you get you get a ticket, a gas mask, uh, and a, and a full hazmat suit to go along with it is with your with your with your plane ticket from Cardiff to Bristol is. Uh, is uh, is the only thing that's making me laugh about it all, to be honest. Anyway. Uh, not- noticeably, this all came out the day after we had to decide what to do about our tickets. Yeah. It's just another example of, of UEFA's... Um, not giving a shit, really. Blinkered, blinkered look uh, approach to this, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
to move on, well, I say to more positive things, to, to further bad news, uh, and that is, of course, the news that Ashley Williams has retired from football. Uh, he was playing with Bristol City last season. I understand they did offer him some sort of deal. A few other clubs did apparently had an offer in Turkey and, and somewhere in America as well, but he obviously decided enough was enough. Um, I just wanted, before we kind of go into specifics, Ruth, just to get your your thoughts on on his retirement before before we yeah, before we continue um not a surprise i suppose overall um i think he has he's been working on his coaching badges and i think he has a lot to offer in that avenue going forward and i can see why particularly in the present circumstances not leaving the uk uk to play abroad but presumably to start looking at transitioning into the other side of the of the game, um, the, the timing just made sense for him in that regard. I think, he, like you said, he could have carried on playing if he if he'd wanted to, but I, I think he's his kind of heart perhaps isn't in it, and he's ready to be doing different things. Yeah, I mean, I I, I did wonder if part of his decision to kind of not do it at the start of the year was so he could have the opportunity to get to say goodbye to football in some way shape or form one of the biggest shames for me is I feel like he's kind of snuck out through the back door through through no fault of his own and I think you know whether it be Swansea Wales wherever I, I think that his contributions to to football in Wales especially is not just at international level has, has, has been absolutely enormous and I, I think that's one of the big things I think anyway is that it's a shame that he had to leave without without saying goodbye you know yeah I mean I hope we're going to we as in the FAW and the fans and, and people are going to uh, do something for Ash in particular but I also think it's one of the few Personally, I feel it's one of the few sort of missteps of the FAW lately is that there's been a few players retiring. Um, like, say, if you look at the squad from 2016, you know, David Vaughan retired, Simon Church retired, um, James Edwards. Collins retired. Yeah. Joe Ledley, I suppose um, he's not officially retired from internationals. but Yeah, I mean, there's I mean. there's a few people who, um, like David Cottrell, for example, um Dave Edwards, who are obviously still playing, um, I think I, I think it's a slightly grey area where where people are still playing. Um, but for those for those folks who have like properly retired, yeah. as it were, I do think it's a pity not to be acknowledging past internationals in some way. I think I'd I'd like to see us set up a system, even if it's just you know. Once a year, first game, first home game of the calendar year, or something, is is the one where at halftime we're going to do something yeah. to acknowledge the players who've retired in the last twelve months. I don't think it has to be like major, and I think Ashley is in a slightly different class than some of the other people I mentioned. But I do think it, I I do think we're very good at um, acknowledging players when they're playing, and I do I think we're missing a step by the kind of absence of a goodbye, as it were. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Simon Church is someone you gave a great example of mm. there who was kind of a key part of that Wales journey, wasn't he, uh, in the year mm. 2016? And I know, obviously, he, he 
went a while without scoring and all that sort of thing. But I, I, he was a key part of that whole whole thing from those under twenty ones coming into the seniors. So I agree that yeah. there's there's a few names that you've said there who deserve to have their contribution to Welsh football. Uh, noted in some way shape or form and, and I hope that the, the FAW do that and I'm sure that with Ash as you say it is a slightly different circumstance because he was a captain and, and everything that he achieved in 2016 but you'd like to think that they will recognize that in some way shape or form yeah and I, I imagine they are I imagine they're working on it yeah but uh, I, I think it you know a whole a sort of more holistic approach to retiring players would be good um, we've kind of ummed and ahed about how we should best uh, say what we say a few things, say a few words, like it's a memorial, um, <laughs> say, to say a few words about Ash and, and his kind of time time as a Welsh player. So we've kind of come up with a with a ten with ten sort of memories, if you like, that I just thought we could kind of talk through a little bit and you know have a little bit of nostalgia and have a little bit of a reminisce little trip down memory lane. Um, I, I came up with a few. I don't know if you've got any extras you wanted to add in. Well, I thought, I thought it was interesting. Like Dave sent me a message of a suggestion of, we should do a top 10 about Ash's, Ash's time as a player. And then suddenly sends like, his top five. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I get six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Anyway. <laughs> I tried to, in so my I've defense, got... to to avoid that, I tried to do them in um, chronological order. So he didn't think I was just stealing all the good ones. So I've um, I've I've got a few to add. I'm not sure we're going to make ten in the end. Um, okay, well, I'll 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 go first. Um, I one of my favourite memories, possibly in in life as a Wales fan, was going to watch Wales play Luxembourg at Parker Scarlets. Um, it was a really weird game of football. Um, but it was the day that Ashley Williams got his first goal for Wales. If I remember correctly, it was kind of a nice, nice sunny day. Um, I remember having a few beers at there's like some weird Frankie and Benny's type place uh, just by the stadium, having a few pints there before the game. Um, and it was one of those ones where you're just like, oh, this is, this is, we've got five goals. This is actually quite enjoyable. But um, I was listening to the, to the Edgefoth pod the other day, and you forget that he did play a few games at the start of his Wales career in, uh, in a defensive midfield role rather than just as a as a defender and I think that that day was one of those days and um, I think it was a sign of things to come really I think amongst amongst other things I think he really showed up that game in and in, in kind of brushed aside a Luxembourg team who you know in Wales teams have gone by we've probably drawn one one with <laughs> you know so yeah I, I just remember that as a, as a great day as much as anything else but uh, obviously that was the day he scored his first goal yeah that kind of leads to one of my points I want to make because it's easy it's easy when you think of him to be picturing and we'll, we'll come to the one that's going to be top of the list I'm sure but um <laughs> To, to forget the sort of defensive mastery and the way his game developed, particularly when he joined Swansea, you know, the improvement in his ability to play out from the back and read games. And, you know, like you were saying, the fact that he could play defensive midfield. And I think that's an attribute that he really then used from, from central defence. Um, so I've got a sort of general classification of his of his ability to read the game, the, the number of impressive clearances off the line, whether it was headed or, or lunged. Uh, one of my favourites was a tackle at the Liberty against Wayne Rooney 
uh, Rooney was running in a sort of inside right, show my age, an inside right <laughs> channel. <laughs> and Ash was behind him and, and came on, overtook him. And Wayne wasn't speedy, admittedly, but overtook him. You know, it was a very, it was a borderline, are you in the box or not kind of position and just made an immense clearance. And I think uh, I, I wanted to kind of have a nod to just what a good classy defender he was. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, you know, we, you mentioned his his leadership there and um, and that was obviously one of his assets and his attributes and his, <coughs> excuse me, his attitude and stuff on the field and you know a lot of it has been made this week uh, of his story you know working in a petrol station and a theme park and kind of playing for was it Hendersford and, and Stockport County before kind of stepping up and I think you don't you know that the, the attitude that he must have had to kind of keep going through all of that is something that he then portrayed on the pitch and whilst mm-hmm. that I think demonstrates a lot of his stories like that Luxembourg game I, I was talking about Wales got back to a, a Luxembourg sorry equalised at one point in that game you know that went to 1-1 and I think someone needed to come in and grab things by the scruff of their neck but I say all these things because it's easy to remember that side of him. I think it's also really important to remember the side of him being the classy defender he was. He wasn't just all action. He wasn't just lunging and throwing himself in front of the ball all the time. There was, you know, there's a real genuine footballing quality there and a real, mm-hmm. a real football understanding, which to an extent, I think perhaps gets a little bit overlooked. I would agree. I would agree. I think he's become... For us, for Swansea and for us, he became so important as the captain that you can overlook the actual on-field minute-by-minute contribution as well. Yeah, I mean, that that comes on to my next one, which is the the game in the snow um, where where we were 1-0 down against Scotland and came back to win uh, 2-1. Um, that was Ash's first game as captain. And again, you you know, and I, we will get more onto the, his footballing skills, but you look at a side there that needed a shake from everything that was going on, understandably so. And, you know, being 1-0 down there, that, again, kind of typified his attitude toward football, that it was never a a giving up sort of situation. We came back, got the win in that game, and that was when you started to perhaps feel the the wheels turning for, for Chris Coleman a little bit. And that is something that I think goes underrated to an extent in the whole in the whole process that we we ended up getting to Euro 2016 with. Yes, I mean it, at the time when Speed changed the captaincy. Coleman. Sorry, uh, I say Speed. <laughs> it's because you were just talking about Gary Speed. Sorry. At the time when Coleman changed the captaincy, I'm not sure Ash would necessarily have been the first name that people went for you could you could see his leadership developing but I think the I think that particular decision and how they both then ran with it is actually very pivotal in what became of our qualification and what happened when we got to 2016 yeah I agree I agree back to your turn my turn. I was actually going to talk about some of his headed goals, but in a, in a general sense, because um, I think the there's this sort of adage, you know, send the big guy up for the corner 
kind of mechanism. And I think he was actually a better goal scorer than that that cliche kind of does him does him justice. Yeah. Um, there was one for the Swans against Watford in I don't know if it was fourteen fifteen or fifteen sixteen January, you know, a midwinter day, and the Swans had been slumping and were sort of ricocheting along the relegation. Uh, the relegation zone and he scored against Watford in a in a one nil win and and dragged the whole team through that game and they they then went on a decent run of form and and, and cleared the relegation zone and ultimately in the season finished mid mid table uh, but it, I think it was a great example of him grabbing a game by the scruff of the neck and just not leaving the pitch without the three without the three points and, and him actually scoring on that day um, emphasised that. Uh, one of my favourite goals that he scored at club level was actually for Everton. Okay. Um, he was in a Europa League game against uh, Olympic Lyonnais and um, Sigurdsson crossed from a free kick sort of on the right-hand side and, and Ash went up and, you know, beautiful header in um to get the game back to 1-1 ultimately they actually lost it but at the time it was like okay yeah this is this is moving forward for him he's going to be okay in Everton that was kind of the feeling and actually his first first initial spell there wasn't was actually quite successful but then it petered off quite quite quickly um but it was it was memorable for me because of at the time it was like okay it's going all right he's going to be okay there um but the particular the particular goal was just a lovely combination of something that they'd clearly been working on um in in training and it was great to see it come off it's interesting actually i remember that game was i don't remember the goal or anything else um what i do remember is that ash sparked like some sort of oh yes 10-man brawl that day for shoving the keeper That's i think right. it, push it, him the over the advertising board or something after, i'm sorry i'm speaking over no, you sorry, go on. the the goal was just after he almost got a red card yeah for that, for that yeah, yeah that i'm sure he pushed like pushed was it the keeper maybe or over the hoardings i don't know but i do i do remember that that kind of all he all kicked all that i mean let's not forget yeah. i mean i'm not sure this counts in my top 10 i don't know what number we went on anymore for a starter but um i mean the day that he accidentally on purpose kicked the ball at Robin Van Persie's head and oh. Alex Ferguson said he was lucky to be alive after. <laughs> uh, I thought, you know, I guess that's probably not one of his, his highlights, one of Ferguson's is said, but absolutely superb. And I think it's also worth remembering he, he did have that sort of attitude and he was, you know, very kind of wear your, wear your heart on the sleeve. The whole thing with the, with the ball boy as well at, um, uh, at Swansea against Eden Hazard where he kind of went over and was checking on him and kind of didn't start a brawl that day but certainly very much got himself involved in the situation I think that is one of those things why he is such a good leader why people look up to him because he's not afraid to kind of stamp his authority on the situation and kind of lead by example yeah no, yeah can I, I go to my next one which is a kind of lead by example but not in the way you might think. <laughs> Not physical violence, way. Yes, go <laughs> No, far from physical violence. I love the story about him writing to Sabutio as a kid. What? I think it's... Did you not know this? No, I, oh, I love it when you do this, Ruth. How could you not know this story? So, as a kid, he's playing Sabutio, and there's no black players. 
Oh, I did. I have heard this. So, Sorry. So he wrote to Sabutio and said, where are the black players? And I think it's just it just goes back to that idea of him leading from the front. You know, he was not afraid to ask a question. And he had every right to ask a question and pull them up on it. And I love the fact that he did. And that did lead to Subutio putting black players yeah. in, in Subutio as well, which, yeah, I yeah. had I've forgotten that story. But, yeah, that, that's very true. And, uh, yeah, that is a great story. I agree. Um, for, to, to take it back to uh, the, the football pitch rather than the, the green bays on a table, um, <laughs> I think we've talked a lot about leadership and everything else, and I think that is kind of omnipresent in a lot of his, his big moments. But I think whilst the strength and his physicality and his leadership skills can't be underestimated I think it's also worth pointing out as well that there are some games he's had for Wales where he hasn't looked like a defender he's, he's he has looked like a midfielder like his range of passing again I, I said underrated mm-hmm. before I would say is underrated here I think when we played Belgium in the nil nil you know we, we're going through all the mm-hmm. nostalgia moments here but um the zombie nation game as it's been called I, I think his performance that day, and I know he was great in the 1-0 win, and I'm sure we'll come to that as well, but I felt like he really tried to to play in a, in a real classy footballing way in that game, as well as just kind of death or glory on the, you know trying to keep trying to keep the ball out of the net and don't get me wrong there were moments of that as well but there were there were also elements in that game because obviously we watched those not lo- not too long ago in lockdown one of lockdown <laughs> 12 or whatever now and um you know that was the thing that stood out to me that day is that he really did try and spring us on the counter-attack a couple of times and he really did like and he was very good at bringing the ball out to the back with his feet and kind of being able to spray the ball about and kind of recycle the ball in a way that I think that again is something that is kind of overlooked by him yeah no I agree I think his ball playing capacity his distribution the way he could see the game um was was a key a key asset I think the that kind of um, high pressing approach that we tried, particularly in the nil nil game, of of just for God's sake, just keep them away from the goal if we can. We'll deal with it here if we have to, but let's not put them in a position to do much. His actual ability to quickly release the ball from defence and give us the capacity to. When we, on the few occasions we had the ball, at least we were up the field with it. Um, I think that was actually underrated in the way that it bought us some space and time in those games um, and took the pressure off at key moments. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's something I, to, to move on to my next one. And again, I totally agree is, is when we played Austria. Uh, mm-hmm. Where I famously dislocated my shoulder. That's why I think the game's probably more famous for Ben Woodburn scoring a world in, a, in our world. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Ben Woodburn doesn't know that. Um, yeah, uh, his performance that day is another one I think that gets overlooked, and it's possibly his last kind of great performance for Wales because he didn't need to be the the, the all action Ashley Williams that he had been sometimes. A lot of the time, he. Is, he is very good at intercepting the ball and reading play and, and kind of picking balls off when other people would try and concentrate on something else. And I think 
the goal that day when when the anthem is is ringing around the, mm-hmm. the, the ground actually comes from kind of like a bit of a broken up passage of play where he spreads the ball out wide and and get and I'm not giving them the assist but where where he kind of begins that passage of play having having broken something up in the first place and again I think those contributions do often get forgotten and I and I I appreciate that like I said that was probably his last great game for Wales um, but I think again that contribution that that style of play that bringing it out from the back was uh, was just fantastic and so important for us than the way we played he he was masterful that day actually wasn't he and we we would not have had the i don't think we'd have had the drive and the tempo and the just keep going without him and i think that applies to the crowd as well i think there was a definite synergy very very evident that day i do again like you know being nostalgic i do think it's a shame equally that you know the end of that campaign finished with ultimately Mm. his mistake you know his error yeah Yeah. and, and i and i remember him getting a lot of grief from fans from walking off down the touch um down the tunnel straight after the match instead of clapping the fans and and I like kind of said at, at the time you know I think if I'd have done that I would have want to got the hell out of there as well and you know he was obviously furious I think that that is a shame and I, and I remember kind of saying like sticking up for him to an extent that after that not that he needed my uh my approval but I, I think that again is a sign of how just how much it meant to him like we yeah. often talk about Welsh our Welsh team and uh and how we do have people who who aren't born in Wales, but I, I think that was one thing I really took from his uh, post on Instagram was talking about captaining my country. He didn't say captain in mm-hmm. Wales. He talked about captain in my country, and and I really like that. And I think that that rage he knew that that was his last chance of playing in a World Cup, and 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 how personally he took that, not just for himself but also for 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 what it meant for the country. I think mm-hmm. um, kind of says a lot about the man. Yeah, I mean, I think it was um, the reaction was unfair, but I, I, I have no idea how I would react under those circumstances. So I'm not going to judge yeah. how he how he did. And the I, I agree with you though. I think I just think it's un- incredibly unfortunate that that's how that campaign yeah. ended. Because if there was a player that did not deserve that, it was him. Yeah. For what it's worth, I know exactly my reaction would have been the same as his as well. Probably, <laughs> probably kicking things over as I walked off trying to blame someone else. Um, no, I agree that that is a shame, and I know he has kind of played since, but that was the last kind of campaign that he was pivotal, really. Um, yeah. Part of the last campaign that was pivotal, yeah. So, um, have you got any more before we get on to the obvious big hitters? No, I think should we move on to the Northern Ireland game and the the yes, collision with let's. Johnny? Um, you go, you go. I've just, I've just spoken loads. Okay, so um, one, I, it, I still makes me laugh that the, the injury actually resulted from a collision with Johnny yeah, Williams. Oh, I was going to say that. <laughs> oh, get it. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, that makes me laugh every whole, time. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, and obviously, under all normal circumstances, he should have been subbed off. But I, I love the the. I'm fine, yeah. I'm fine kind of reaction. And I also value the fact that Coleman had the faith in him that he wouldn't actually say that if he didn't think he could do what was needed on the field. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine circumstances where a, a manager or a coach would be like, 
I, I don't actually believe you. I don't yeah. believe you're fine. Um, and I think I think it speaks well of their relationship that Coleman had the confidence in him to know that clearly he wasn't he wasn't actually fine, but he was fine enough um, and could see out the game. I think that shows as well the importance that he held for us in that game, which was a very, yeah. you know, I would say attritional is is the word I would use to describe <laughs> the game. Um, <clears throat> you know, I one of my because I I was at that, and one of mm-hmm. my memories from that afterwards was everyone kind of going around high-fiving and hugging and obviously as a as a as a fan of dislocated shoulders i was kind of <laughs> instantly kind of concerned about the whole thing and obviously i didn't see on the tv at the time the i'm fine mm-hmm. thing but um it was uh i just remember people going up to him afterwards and he was kind of like strong art stiff arming people off yes. as he was kind of walking right. around with his kind of arm tucked up under his, under his you know under his chest sort of thing which i i found i found kind of funny so i that was at that point do you know what i was thinking again you know probably not in the same sort of way as him but i i i to me i thought he'd dislocated his shoulder and i thought he was just mm-hmm. kind of got it, someone to put it back in he was getting on with it but to me that was me thinking that's him done like he's he's not yeah. he's not playing in the next game so again i think it speaks of his kind of of his leadership and everything else that he not only kind of returned for the next game but then was brilliant the next game as well yeah yeah i mean it it just speaks for for his determination and his desire doesn't it yeah i totally agree and then i suppose we're on to the <laughs> the obvious the obvious choices um I do want to just have a mention before we do go on to the other Belgium game, but the the one nil win at home, um, that was that that was the last game I went to before moving to America. So that was I love that, and as I've and I've said on on here before, the day afterwards, morbidly hung over trying to play golf. I played golf behind Gareth Bale, who was two teed off seven minutes before me or what it was. So I just had the most ridiculous couple of days there, where I was crying at the anthems, knowing I'm not going to watch this for a couple of years again. And then watching Gareth Bale play eighteen holes of golf, it was you know sandwiched between one of the biggest victories you you could ever imagine. So uh, that that game holds really special memories to me, but. Um, his performance that day we talked about the football inside of things in the other nil nil and yes there were moments of that in this game as well the one nil win but there's one moment that sticks out in my mind when late in the second half there's a ball that gets whipped across and I think it's Romelu Lukaku who's going for the ball and he is trying to have like kind of a half side volley swipe and Ash just appears from nowhere like completely horizontal head first trying to flick the ball away and he's like the reason he doesn't get kicked in the head is because Romelu Lukaku or I think it was him seems genuinely scared but Ashley Williams is going to headbutt his foot rather than anything else like he just sticks his head there and, and the opposition player pulls out and like that 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 moment was just like Jesus like he's he's some player this guy and uh, yeah that's just a just an endearing memory for that for that game I think that's an interesting point you make about his fearlessness because we haven't actually haven't mentioned that particularly. He was he was not uh, again to throwing his throwing his head into dangerous areas and absolutely. putting his body on the line. Um, absolutely, and I mean I, I think we've talked about his goals, we've talked about his fearlessness and everything else, but I, I think his most important moment in a whale shirt has got to be that goal against Belgium after he retired at the end the news came out so I watched the Belgium game 
uh, back. Um, I found it on UEFA's website. And uh, again, like your memories, like your mind plays tricks on you sometimes. Like the start of that game was mental. Like we just spent the first, basically until they scored, just giving the ball away hurling ourselves in the way of tackles and 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 again he was at the he was at the the four of that but equally once they scored and we got into the game he was just instrumental in everything we were doing kind of forcing the press higher up the pitch getting involved in everything getting on at the ref about about absolutely everything at one point after ben davis got booked um which broke my heart watching that back again. I still mm-hmm. maintain I wasn't a book in like four minutes in. But anyway, um, after that happened, every time that one of the other Dutch players, um, Belgian players, sorry, gave away a foul, he was straight over to the ref and was like, well, if this is a book in, why is that not a book mm-hmm. in? Um, and I think he, like it says in the Don't Take Me Home, kind of pulled us out from under Belgium a bit that night. And that we got going, we started playing well. Obviously, Neil Taylor should score uh, his second goal of the tournament and then next thing you know we get another corner and just just an unbelievable moment you know I know you and I shared that together but it, it was just an unbelievable moment and I think great header what where De Bruyne is going I don't know but what a header but the the scenes of celebration afterwards I think for me sum up what Wales at Euro 2016 was and I think it was apt that he was at the forefront of that yes I mean I think the fact that his immediate I mean the goal is beautiful um we, we don't need to say more yes. more than that it was very very well taken um but the fact that his first immediate reaction is not to be celebrating with the players immediately around him but is to be celebrating with the guys back at the bench yeah is indicative of what we were at the time. You know, it was a group of, what, 40, 45 of them all together, I suppose. Um, And everyone, every person in that, in that group was, was pivotal and vital. And I think Ash, that run back kind of demonstrates that, that, that we all, I mean, we were in it together. (laughs) We were, we, every, everyone was vital, and he he wanted to share that joy in that moment with with everybody. Um, yeah, I think that says a lot about him, and I think and the whole circumstance really. Um, just like you say, and I think you know what a header as well, what a goal, what yeah. a, it must be so satisfying when something that you've obviously worked on on the training ground like that comes off in that way and let alone in the in the quarter final of a, of a European Cup as well. Just yeah, fantastic header. And pinpoint delivery from from Ramsey. I think we forget how how good a corner actually it was because the header is so impressive. He was just ridiculous. And again, like the whole Ramsey's book in as well. Like it's just, oh, it, don't, you, don't, you know it's don't, coming don't. as well. But it was he was outraged. Like that day, I don't think he ever stopped. He ever never stood still. He was just unreal. Uh, anyway, we let's not go down this. Uh, yeah, this, no. this Can I add like a PS to that? Of course, yeah. Because. Because one of my favourite images from the whole of the Euros, in fact, I think if I could only have two pictures from that period, I'd have Gunz's chin up and this, which is the heart-shaped huddle after oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Belgian win, you know, that aerial view down, and Ash is kind of at the V of the heart, giving it what for. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's just another example of his leadership and another example of him bringing the group together as a whole um 
and I just wanted to add that as a sort of PS to the to this to this particular game. No, absolutely. That's a that's a very good point. Very good point. Um, the last thing that we wanted to talk about. Um, I see. I've moved on quite harshly there. I, I feel like I, <laughs> I, I could have done that better. I just this was the last thing we want to say is just thank you, really, because yeah. you know leadership, unbelievable defensive classiness is the word you used before, which I liked, um, <laughs> and. I think someone who really epitomised what it what it means to play for Wales. So, and you know, and it, he's our greatest ever captain. You can't you can't really argue against that. He's our most successful captain. He's he's led us through a period of unbelievable torment, really, from what happened with with Gary Speed through to through to what happened in in 2016 and beyond. He's he's just done amazing things and been one of the biggest part the fulc one of the fulcrums, if you like, of of, of what we have achieved as a footballing nation and you know just huge thank you to ash for that yeah i would i would agree and i think it's an um, amazing example of someone who at, at face value back when he was at stockport it's like what what's he gonna bring to the table what's it what's he gonna give us and you look at how it's mushroomed and developed them how as you say, pivotal he became, and I hope in the future is as well. I think I think we need to um, make sure we lean on some of these old pros, as it were. Um, but I think it's a lesson as well to, you know, look for the diamonds in the rough and and make sure that you we are using every asset that's available to us. Absolutely, and he absolutely was an asset. Um, speaking of someone who is an asset, but maybe not for much longer, that was the worst link I've ever done. Um, Oof, that's a bad link, even by our standards. I know, I know. <laughs> um, I, the, the big question that has been kind of put to us a couple of times, and it was further kind of put into into light last night, was is, is the Gareth Bale conundrum if you can call it that levi griffith sent us a message controversial question but there is is there a slow turn in public opinion amongst wales fans in regard to gareth bale it seems to be that the zidane was right perhaps the whole time and even wales fans and welsh media are now questioning bale's commitment and ability at the top level to go with that like a um a friend of mine paul o'brien carl has sent me a, a message as well um equally is it time that wales made a plan a without bail now i know we kind of we touched on that a little bit last time but i feel like it 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 merits being discussed again because we joked about it before we started recording i mean he was i i I think i'll say i think he was poor last Mm -hmm. night against brighton and i you could even argue that poor may even be a bit generous depending on on your perspective i i I mean, let's just start there before we go on to the Wales thing. I mean, it is really quite alarming and almost upsetting to an extent watching watching Bale perform the way he is. It is. I can't deny that. The, the conundrum, I think, is that he's played two games in a row. You want... you We want him to have game time to build up his to build up his play to be comfortable with his playing partners to you know get acclimatized duh, 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 duh. 
And you can't ask for that and expect it to be 100% out of the gate. You can't acknowledge that he needs playing time and he needs consistent playing time and argue for that and then expect his game to be perfect at the start of that run of 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 game now i'm so i i do think there's a sort of slightly circular argument here in that what are we actually looking for do we want him to get playing time so that his game can improve but are we not prepared to live with the improvement phase i think that's one question the my concern is if this is the baseline and it's so low, even if there is a significant incremental development because he gets some playing time, you're going to go from poor to mediocre. And I think that's actually where my worries are, is if if this is kind of, yeah, base baseline bail at the minute, it is such a low point compared to what it should and could be, I would hope. I mean, you've kind of... Uh predicted my interruption there i i <laughs> i um I, I i i agree to an extent i i think it's you're right if this is the baseline then he can only improve so much anyway i i think for me you're right we do need to expect there to be an improvement but what i would class right as an as an improvement or someone who is needing time to improve is someone who kind of runs around a lot all right they might misplace the odd pass or they might misplace um a shot or uh you know mistime a tackle because you're 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 macking you're lacking match sharpness there whereas what i saw with bale yesterday didn't seem someone who was even running around a lot he wasn't misplacing the odd pass he misplaced a lot of passes um you know we talked again before we started about he had a corner just before he was subbed off and his corner hit the first man, the ball came back to him, he tried to dink a ball to the back post and it hit a different first man. Like that's something that I don't expect to happen, you know, at a Sunday league level. I'd be annoyed at that. And yes, it's one game, but it's not one game in isolation. Like since his return, he's he's not the baseline level as you say is is just not there and i'm not i'm not being critical of him in the sense that i want rid of him because that's not that that's not the case at all i think a huge amount of this is not his own doing i think it must take a huge um chunk out of your your confidence and everything and your love of football when you basically don't play properly for in reality two and a half or so years possibly even longer so I, I I do understand the situation, but I, I I do worry we're at a point now where, for me anyway, I I think that perhaps just to move on slightly to the second question at the same time, is that is, I is there a, is there a feeling that realistically the only one of the big reasons he would get into the Welsh team right now is because there is actually no one really putting a huge amount of pressure on him to to take that jersey off him. Dan James isn't playing, um, you know. Wilson is kind of doing okay. I, I know he got an assist the other day for Cardiff. Um, Di Brooks is doing well, but he's playing in the championship. I, I, I don't know if, and I don't think that's. I'm not sure if that's a good enough reason for him to continue playing either. Do, do you know what I mean? I, I don't even know what a question I'm asking you anymore. But I hope from all the waffle that I just said there, you can give me a response. Uh, 
Um, I think he isn't the automatic that he he might have been previously. I think you would be looking at his involvement in the starting eleven in the context of those other players that you're talking about. Does he fit with the opposition? Um, who's in form? Who's match fit? That you actually start to ask those questions with, and he's in that discussion. Whereas previously his name was on the starting sheet and then you worried about the others. So I think that's the change at the minute, because as you say, um, David Brooks is probably the one of of that little trio that you listed, who's probably most directly putting pressure on, on Gareth's position. But if James, at the moment, when James is playing for Wales, he's playing well. I'm not sure you could argue that Gareth is playing well. Although, in fairness, I think in the last game was probably his best game for a while, um, back in November, yeah. um, for us. Um, but if if Harry Wilson and James and David Brooks are playing well and, relatively speaking, at the top of their game, then... Gareth might be fourth fourth on that list then. Um, I wonder if just to, sorry, just a brief interruption. I wonder if the <laughs> thing that might also help him is that I, I can see I think that we want to go forward using this sort of false nine mm. type thing. And I'm not sure if if perhaps the problem could be, and I'm you know, maybe I'm desperately looking for reasons here, but it's not that his form and everything else is, is as bad as it seems. It's more that he can't do the things that we were expecting him to do anymore. He's still a really good at football. He just can't do those kind of runs and skill skin people and whatever. And that him playing as the number nine, the false nine, might actually be the kind of perfect role for him where he can use the runners around him. That finishing ability is still there. Um, you know, and if you're gonna ask me who I would prefer to play as a as a false nine, him or Kiefer Moore, then I would choose Gareth Bale every day of the week. So I wonder if that's also an aspect of it that we're not kind of considering is that he's playing perhaps a different role for Spurs than he would do for Wales. And to add into that, Spurs are also really not very good at the minute. They looked exhausted last night. I thought they were just awful last night. So he was by far from the only player who was who was struggling as well. So I, I don't I don't know if there's if it's a more um dynamic argument than just he's not playing very well at the minute yeah I mean I I agree with that I don't I think it's difficult to draw conclusions about any individual player given how bad the 11 were collectively yesterday um and I, I so I think there needs to be some context to it as well I mean yeah it is a difficult argument and uh I just I think just to go back to what you said at the start, I guess where do we draw the line in regards to where his baseline improvement is, and are we how willing are we to kind of go through this spell, if you like? Because I I'm, I am fairly confident that come what may, he will start the game in March. I think he has to, because I I think we have to see what 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 his sort of international fitness level is, as it were. I mean, I can't, I, I realise that kind of applies to, applies, applies to all of them. Yeah. But the, and I don't want to say he, he looked not 
bothered yesterday because I don't think that's fair. But he's never looked even a percentage within the when he has a Wales shirt on, he's always looked committed and involved and a hundred percent there. Yeah. And for some reason, that persona wasn't there yesterday. And I think that if we can put him in a Welsh shirt and know for sure that the the drive and the effort is still there, then that's a different question than is there a sort of root cause? Is there actually a a root injury or a, a root problem that we don't know of that is that, that is holding him back? Yeah, and we'd see true. we'd see that in a red shirt as well, and then I think it's a different different discussion, different decision. I agree. Perhaps you know the best time to kind of revisit this will be after those March games, where we can see if the Gareth Gareth Bale that plays in in the white of Spurs is also the same Gareth Bale that plays uh, in the red of Wales. Um, I think that's 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 a fair point. I butchered that argument there. Sorry, I was waffling. A lot. I apologise. Sorry, listener. Uh, listener singular. That was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? Anyway, um, so I think we have done about an hour or so, Ruth. I think it is time to let people go. Do you have anything else? Can I, can I, yeah, I, want, I actually wanted to touch on the situation at Wrexham briefly. Go for it. Because um, I'm frustrated, and I'm not quite sure who to be frustrated at. <laughs> um, um, so... The financial situation, people will be aware that the financial situation with the Nations League is that Sport England have helped the Nations Leagues, because it applies to the North and South units as well, um, have the potential of low-cost loans um, if they want them. But Wrexham have been excluded because they are obviously geographically a Welsh team. And Sport England have said, well, we're not giving money to a a team that are geographically in Wales. And fundamentally, I kind of understand their, their point in that regard, though I think the Nations League could have perhaps argued more holistically that this this is you know, an English league and they are a constituent member of the league and we shouldn't be differentiating amongst our constituent members. I think that case, you know, perhaps could have been made more vocally. But but I do understand Port Sport England's point there. Um, the, the reverse situation is what would have, what I think frustrates me the most, that the FAW obviously don't have a direct responsibility for Wrexham. So that they were never going to get money through the FAW and yeah. the work that Sport Wales and, and the lottery and and, 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 and and has been going on, you know, based out of card, if the, the measures that have been put in place, Wrexham weren't going to be a part of that because they're not an FAW club. But let's just do a bit of role reversal for a minute. If the FAW had said, you know, Wrexham is a key asset in North East Wales. It is key to the footballing health of North Wales. It is an asset that we as a Welsh FA cannot let stagnate. Therefore, we are going to help them get some money. 
Now, if the FAW had done that, all the other clubs in the National League would have gone apoplectic that Wrexham would be getting some money from Cardiff. Yeah. Yet, when the reverse situation is in place, Wrexham are meant to deal with it. And that's what pisses me off. I mean, it must be serious for you to swear on the podcast, which is one of your <laughs> golden rules. So, <laughs> I'm going to swear in my next sentence just because Ruth did. Um, no, I, 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 I totally agree. And I think, as Bryn Law tweeted afterwards, are you going to, you know, forget about all the the good things that Wrexham as a football club brings, you know, massive attendances, massive away um, uh, support, which financially boosts all the constituent members, as you mentioned there. Uh, you called it the Nations League, not the National League. Did I? Jump, I just, uh, it is very confusing, to be fair. Not the League of Nations either. So um, to be clear, the, the, the National League, not uh, the Nations League. Um, but yeah, I, I, and he like his point there was, the league fi- and and the clubs who are a part of it financially benefit from from Wrexham being in a big club in the situation they're in, and I and I think you know it's a very short sighted move, and I part of me wonders to be honest, like and again like to to stick with the Wrexham theme, you know they got told not to do commentary this weekend at Kings Lynn on the streams that were going on there it seems a very bizarre situation, and I'm not sure if there's this kind of weird jealousy thing being kind of taken out on on them a little bit at the moment because of as they're being termed hollywood fc like Mm -hmm. you know i i think there is an element of that for sure and it seems incredibly petty um for the uh, uh for the national league to kind of take this approach and it just for the sake of the negative publicity if nothing else and like i said i can i can see their angle but is it really worth it you know, dredging up all this negative publicity for for the sake of a you know few hundred thousand pounds, which in in the the grand scheme of things to the national league probably isn't that much money. Um, the flip side, and to I it, I also doubt whether Wrexham would have taken the loan. I mean, I think there's a lot of questions about the. They did vote against the financial. It, didn't they? The no whether ultimately they would have taken a loan because individual clubs can decide whether they want to utilize the loan or not. In fact, it's still to be voted on properly, isn't it? In fact, it might have been today. Um, The, but there was an interesting interview with the, um, the supporters chair at Chester, for example, and, and they were quite adamant that they weren't going to take the loan regardless because they didn't want to financially put the, the club in, in debt um, and so, you know, I'm not sure the money itself is the is the thing here because I'm not sure Wrexham would have taken the loan. Particularly, they've had this donation, haven't they? Come through from Hollywood, as you say, <laughs> um, which is you know seeing them through. Um, so I'm not, I, I'm not as annoyed about the access to the money part of it. It's the it's the weirdness of the whole situation and the precedent that has kind of been been set by it. And I I presume it's a legal thing primarily. I presume that because it's sporting than money, they Wrexham just can't access it. But I I think the whole scenario has been mishandled. Wrexham have been asking the question repeatedly and, and got an answer very late. Uh, in the whole shenanigans. And I I do just think that 
if there had been a role reversal on this, the reaction that there would have been would have been immense. Um, so I just I just didn't didn't want to miss raising it because it's it's another just another murky situation and football is feeling so damn murky at the minute. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to, to lighten the situation, of course, uh, they well they won on the weekend for one thing, mm-hmm. but also Rob McElhenney tweeted afterwards, "We don't need their money." Um, <laughs> yeah. which, which <laughs> I thought was absolutely with a dry gore as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I do think you know whatever the outcome of this is, it's uh, Wrexham and Rob McElhenney and uh, and Ryan. Uh, Reynolds, I had a bit of a brain fart there. Um, they are getting some magnificent publicity out of this, and I, I think whatever happens next for Wrexham, um, I, I see they have bought someone today. But whatever happens next for them, I, I think that the next few years are going to be such a great ride, and hopefully, the, the you know the financial backing that can be brought to them um, will kind of pull them out of this and hopefully mm-hmm. give everyone in the in in Wrexham and everyone who's a fan of the club, you know, some some real positivity uh, and some and some good times ahead when we will be able to hopefully laugh at uh, uh, the National League or the League of Nations. Uh, <laughs> screw it. Or the Nations League. Uh, just anyone. Yeah, any of these <laughs> bastards. See, I told you I'd swear. Um, any of these people um, for, for kind of screwing Wrexham over. So, yes. There, I think we should finish. Um yes as it is tea time well thank you very much for listening ladies and gentlemen this has been a bit of a longer one than usual well not by our standards actually but you know uh, but thank you very much for listening we appreciate it and hopefully we'll be back next week with another pod thank you very much bye 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 bye